I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Those are verses 11 to 15 of Psalm 77, which is, uh, along with Psalm 79, are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, August the 1st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our um, walk through the book of Judges. Today we're in chapter 6, verses 25 to 40, which is a portion of the story of Gideon. Also, over in um, John's Gospel now, we finished with Matthew last week, and so now we're in John's Gospel, the first 18 verses of the first chapter, uh, which are the prologue to the gospel itself. It, it gives you all the great themes of the gospel caught up in that first 18 verses. And then in Acts, chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. So, we again, we, it, I had to tell you that it was Gideon because the passage begins, that night the Lord said to him, and him is Gideon, and the Lord said, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it. The Asherah would be a pole. Um, These were both fertility gods and goddesses. And the Baal was the main god, and Asherah was his consort. So his, um, I guess, I'm not sure the best way to say that, but um, it would be his female companion would be the best way to say it, I guess. Um, And and the Asherah pole literally was intended to represent a male phallus. So it... That's what the Asherah refers to here. He tells him to take those down and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you have cut down. So you're going to take down that pole, cut it up, and use that to, to start the fire to, to offer this bull. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. It's interesting because if you look at um, Talmudic sources and and Midrashic sources, you'll see that that a similar kind of thing is exactly the reason that Abraham was chosen. That They they come up with the story that Abraham's father, father was a seller of idols. It bothered Abraham a lot. So one day, when his father asked him to keep the shop, he smashed the idols of his father. And his father came home and said, what, what in the world has happened here? He said, well, they got into an argument about which one was the greatest, and they smashed each other. And he said, you know, that's not true. These are not real. He said, yep, that's the whole point. So here you see the same thing in that, that um, Gideon is, is required by God to go and destroy the, the idol worship of his father. But he does it at night when nobody's there to see this happening. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? After that, they searched and inquired. They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. It, it, They're they're jealous and zealous for these altars of uh, idolatry. 
that they've become so accustomed to it and so inured to their presence that they no longer see the problem in having idol worship in the land. They, they no longer see any problem with violating the first commandments that were given to the people at Sinai. And they believe now that, that Gideon needs to be destroyed for what he's done. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar had been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbabel, saying, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. And again, you, you would see this same idea in that story that I told you about Moses, the Midrash, about Moses, or not Moses, sorry, Abraham, destroying his father's idols. That, that this is kind of putting that on its head a little bit, because in that one, the, um, Abraham defends what he did by saying these things are nothing to start with. And here, it seems that Joash has come to some sort of belief, because it says initially that these are your father's uh, altars, the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole that's beside it. And so here he is saying, if he's a god, let him contend for himself. And so there's a sense of, is he anything at all? Does this mean anything at all? So all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the Valley of Jezreel. Now, the Valley of Jezreel continues to play an important part in uh, Scripture all the way through the Old Testament and then ultimately into the Revelation as well. It plays a prominent role in the death of Jezebel. It plays also a role in Hosea's prophecy. And so it, it continues to be an important place um, in Israel. But the, people, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpets, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. Then he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. So in all these, these are all, not the Abizarites, that's a smaller subset of a, of, of a tribe, but these others, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, those are all part of... The, the tribes of Israel. And so he summons those tribes to come and help him. They would have been the ones closest to his own tribe. And so the Midianites and the Amalekites are coming against them because they've torn down an altar of Baal, and that's the gods that they worship. So they're coming here because they've done something to uh, offend against their god. And so what, what's happened is Joash, who is an Israelite, has told the Israelites among them to leave these to, to let Baal contend for himself. However, the Midianites and the Amalekites are now going to come to the rescue and the salvation of their gods. And so after he sends these messengers to these places and they come and, and meet with Gideon, he said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's already believing this to be true, but but he's hedging his bets and he wants to know for certain so he's saying, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to put this fleece out on the ground, and if in the morning when I get up that fleece is wet but the ground is dry, then I'll know that you're sending me to do this. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me, but let me just speak once more. 
please let me test just once more the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there shall be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. You can hear the in, in this the sort of the bargaining that Abraham does with God over the people of Sodom as well, where he's saying, okay, how about this? How about if there's 30 righteous men? Yeah, okay. How about if there's 20? How about if there's 10? Enough. You know, finally, God is done with the bargaining. And that's what that's what's happening here is, is that Gideon wants to be absolutely certain that God's actually called him to do this and that, that the promise that he has heard is true. And I understand that um, because he, he, didn't, he didn't seem like a guy who was going to be the commander of the army because he's a guy who's afraid of his father and the townsfolk uh, enough that he's not going to tear down that Asherah pole or break up the altar of Baal. So it, it's not his character at this point to be the guy who sees himself as the deliverer, who sees himself stepping into the role of Moses or stepping into the role of Aaron when Aaron delivered Lot. So you can see that, that he has a lot of trepidation about this. He's, he's not a man of war. He's not really a man of action. God had to tell him to do this thing. He was willing to be obedient, though. And remember, that's the key thing. So in the gospel today, in this prologue, what we get in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So they're one and the same, but with. Now figure that one out, because we've still got to preserve the unity, the oneness of God. And so what he says is he was with God, but he was God at the same time. So that's how you preserve the unity and understand, or begin to understand at least, the Trinity. Is that with and was both need to be true. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And that's an important concept, too, to say all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So anything that's made was made through him, and, and, and anything. So you can say all things were made through him, but then you have to say, but there's not other things out there that were created by someone else. Everything that's ever been created and particularly in that moment of creation, was created through him. And, and again, that goes back to, this, the, to scientific principles that matters new, it can't be destroyed. It just takes different forms. <clears throat> and then it says, in him was life, and, in, and the life was the light of men. What's the first thing that's created? Let there be light, right? And so that light isn't the sun, the moon, and the stars light. That's the primordial light, and that is him filling the universe with light in a way that that allows you to see from one end of the universe to the other across space and time. And that light then has to go away when sin enters the world. So that's, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It's important in the time that John writes this. We believe that John was, was a, a disciple of sorts, at least, of, um, of John the Baptist. And so here, we think that he's at least in part writing to do two things, to confirm John's witness about Jesus and to, and to affirm John that he was the important witness, the important one who points to the Messiah and says he has come. And if you read Luke's gospel, what you get is exactly that idea, that God has, has uh, announced John 
and given him to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as a herald of the coming Messiah. So he has an incredibly important role to play. He was chosen by God. He was actually brought into being by God in the same way that Abraham and Sarah end up with Isaac. And so we get this herald of the new thing that God's doing, and that's John. And so he's affirming John as, as incredibly important, the final prophet of the Old Testament, the one who points directly to Messiah, while at the same time acknowledging that he is less than, which is exactly what John says about himself. So he's giving him his due, while at the same time pointing John's disciples away from John to the one to whom John himself pointed. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, didn't recognize him, didn't recognize its own creator. How far we've gone from Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, in the garden, to now God comes back into the world, and they don't recognize him. His own people don't recognize him even, but, but the world didn't know him at all. He came to his own, but his own people didn't receive him. In fact, they crucified him. So they didn't receive their own Messiah. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this is one of those things that people think, well, we're creating the image of God. That makes us children of God. No, it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't make us children of God at all. The, we, we have to have the right to b- become children of God. How do we get that right? By believing in the Son. Before that, we are creatures. We are created beings, yes. We are created specifically in the image of God, but we can't become children of God unless we believe in the Son of God. And then we begin to take on His image Again, we take it on in new ways because we're given the Holy Spirit. And when we're given the Holy Spirit, then our lives are intended to be changed. And we're intended to become children of God in a sense that that we display his glory to the world and we make him known. People see the familial resemblance between us and Jesus as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So he says those were given the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So being born, coming into the world, makes you uh, an image bearer of God in some sense, but then you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you become a child of God and you become a true image bearer. But but it's not through the flesh, it's through God. You're, You're born again. Exactly as Jesus is going to say, we're going to see here in chapter 3 when we get there to the conversation with Nicodemus. And the Word became flesh. The Word, who was with God in the beginning and who was God, became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. That's the Word is tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those two things have to go together. The divine character has to be characterized by both grace and truth, mercy and justice, because strict justice means none of us are going to live because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then this other characteristic of God, grace, comes in. But you can't have grace without truth, and you can't have truth without grace, because truth condemns, grace redeems. But grace by itself means nothing at all. You can't have grace unless you also have truth. It's important that those two things continue to coexist together. Churches that just preach grace miss the mark. You never receive grace unless you understand your need of that grace. 
And then he goes on parenthetically to say, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John's pointing in the same way that we saw David pointing to a preexistent Christ. He says, John does the same thing, even though Jesus in space and time is seen after him. But what he's saying is he was before me. And John says he, he was before him so much so that he was there at creation. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law condemns, the law convicts, and that conviction then leads to this sacrificial system. But that's even based on grace because God has to accept it, and he has to say, yes, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't have to do, but there was a provision was always there that that's what would happen. And so he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, so the law is one thing, grace and truth are another thing. There's something beyond law, and that's truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. And John says, so John's argument here is, is that, that Jesus uniquely makes God known. The law came through Moses. Jesus uniquely made God known. We knew some things about God's character through the law and through God's self-revelation in Exodus 34, 8 and 9. You know, that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, in loving kindness, all those things. So Jesus makes him perfectly known by taking on flesh and showing us what that looks like. It's not just words anymore. No, it's the word became flesh. In the Acts passage, remember Peter's preaching here on the day of Pentecost, and, and he preaches and convicts them of sin, and the sin is that of killing the Messiah. And then when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, there's no sacrifice. We've read the Old Testament. We know the system. There's no sacrifice appointed for killing Messiah on a cross. What in the world do we do? And then Peter gives them the most bizarre answer they could ever have imagined. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So you're taking his name, being baptized in his name. That's not what you did. That's not the way it worked. You didn't baptizo in the name of somebody else. You baptized yourself. You, you, you took that mikvah in order to immerse your sins, and you, so you, your, your body is caught up in sin, so you immerse your body in that water, and then you come up out of that, and, and you're a new creation. In certain circles today, even, that um, women, after their monthly cycle, go and and wash themselves in the mikvah. And, and the reason for that is because if you go through that cycle, then, then what's happened is, is that the potential of life within you, that egg, remained unfertilized and it died. And so that's the reason that you become uh, ritually impure, is death has occurred in your body. And so you go into the mikvah and the waters of the mikvah make you cleansed and renewed. And so, but you didn't do that in the name of someone else. But so when he says, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that's a brand new thing. You were baptized, not for forgiveness of sins, but it was what John was doing, was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the forgiveness of sins required also sacrifices, so other things you had to do. But here, Peter's saying, that's it. That's all you have to do. And not only that, you'll get forgiveness of sins, but you'll also receive the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Now, is Peter thinking about the Gentiles at this point? Likely not. Because this is all happening in Jerusalem, and the people that, that are there are those who have come to a, a, a Jewish festival, the festival of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Shavuot is the Jewish word for it. So they've come in response to that. So these people are all Jewish here. There may be some proselytes there, but, he, but he's saying this is what you need to do. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, which is exactly what John had said about this generation as well, this perverse and crooked generation. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So these, those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Nice. Nice beginning. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So it's, this is the eating together, but it's also the communion and also praying together. So they were listening to teaching. They were doing fellowship together, breaking of bread and prayers. They're doing life together. And all came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So, so they're authenticating their message, or the Lord's authenticating their message, through the giving of the Holy Spirit to continue to do the signs and wonders like Jesus did. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. In other words, they had a common purse. Whatever they had, they just put into a common purse, and it was there for the provision of all. That seems to have lasted only a relatively brief period of time, at least until the persecution broke out in Jerusalem on Christians. So they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Well, why would they do that? Well, because they thought Jesus was coming back right away. And so you don't consider private property rights and all that kind of stuff in a community that that believes the coming of God is imminent. We see that in these apocalyptic sort of cultic kinds of things like the the Branch Davidians and and the the group that was waiting on the comet to come and and take them away. I've forgotten their names. Um, But anyway, those, those kinds of cults, ultimately. This is not a cult at this point in time. They probably perceived that way by the Jews, but they really had every reason to believe because they saw the signs Jesus pointed to. They saw those things being fulfilled, and so they thought the coming of Christ was imminent, even though he said, I don't know, and you're not going to know. It's not given to you to know. So so they didn't treat anything as personal property because, well, what difference does it make? We're going to be gone tomorrow anyway. Let's just make sure everybody's taken care of. And then day by day, attending the temple together, so they go to temple in Jerusalem. This is obviously a Jerusalem movement. So they're going to the temple every day, and they're hearing teaching there, but that's augmented and filled by the apostles' teaching. They're teaching them how Jesus fulfilled all the stuff they're going to hear about in the temple and, and breaking bread in their homes. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, in other words, sharing that fellowship, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They were the kind of people who other people wanted to be who saw them not as a threat at this point, but just this kind of odd group that, wow, these people actually love one another so much that they're, they're selling everything and giving it to one another. And then the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What a glorious beginning to the church this is. It, it, all they had to do was be obedient, right? So the, the disciples had to be obedient, stay there in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. They were obedient in those things. John was obedient to the heavenly vision that he'd been given to understand his place in the order of things and, and to stay in his lane and to always know that there was one greater than him. We have to have that same mind among us. This is all we're doing is pointing to Jesus. Anything I do that attracts another person, it's because it, it points to the one who lives in me. 
All we have to do is be obedient and follow him wherever he leads.